Hello and welcome to the After Dinner Podcast. My name is Jay Swords. This is the podcast extension for ROI Show 502. Our guest for today is Dr. Richard Overy, Honorary Professor of History at Exeter University, who will be talking to us about his book, Blood and Ruin, The Last Imperial War, 1911 to 1945. The history buffs that are joining today are Brett Menard and Rick Sweet. And Brett, we'll let you start off this time. Gladly. So we talked in the broadcast portion of the show about the role that the various imperial holdings played. What can you tell us about specifically with regards to the the Japanese attacks on colonial holdings in the South Pacific? Do you think that the European response would have been as strong if those island chains had been independent and not colonial holdings because they feared another uh, imperial power? Or was it more you took what I have rightfully stolen and I, I'm not letting you play with my toys? Well, yeah, indeed. Um, now, in the Japanese case, they needed the island chains because they needed to have a defensive perimeter where they could establish air bases and sea bases in case, you know, for, for major war with the United States. Pacific War was in the United States, so they needed to have a perimeter that was far enough away from the Japanese home islands. Um, uh, otherwise, of course, there wasn't much point in seizing uh, many of the island possessions. Um, and what really mattered to them, of course, was Indonesia, present-day Indonesia, and Southeast Asia and Burma, because you know, there were huge sources of minerals and oil, particularly, which is what they, they wanted. One of the striking things, though, I think, is that once the Japanese had occupied the area, um, in Tokyo, but also at, at local level, um, Japanese officials and soldiers began to, to plan the empire, began to set up you know, imperial institutions and so on, began to, to uh, think in terms of you know, what Japan's empire would look like in you know, 10, 20 years' time, as if it was going to be a permanent feature, not something you had to fight about um, or and were likely to lose. And I think that's a, a bizarre fantasy, really, but it was, you know, it was shared by a lot of Japanese that somehow once they'd done it, the Americans and the British and the French and Dutch would not come back, um, and they would be able to establish an imperial zone of their own. Um, so a lot of planning goes into that, um, in the expectation that there will be a Japanese empire. All right. Rick? Richard, uh, I... Uh suspect that since World War II was so well documented, so to speak, uh, it seemed, uh, you know, really brutal. As we mentioned in the broadcast portion, it's, it was total war. Why were the Germans and the Japanese in particular so colossally brutal uh, in their treatment of the subjugated people, uh, not only before war broke out, but uh, while the war went on? Yeah, it's a very good question. I mean, it's a question that historians have you know, thought about a lot and tried to find answers to. I mean, in both cases, um, what developed what I call a kind of um, toxic culture in, in both armies, where they deeply resented guerrilla activity, opposition, active opposition, terrorism, as they defined it, uh, and they became increasingly brutal the more uh, the areas under occupation objected or, or, or fought against what had happened to them. Um, and I think in, 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 in German military culture, this is something deeply embedded. 
um, that the laws of war, where the soldier fought soldiers, but as soon as uh, civilians started taking part and you know, uh, engaging in what they saw as terrorist acts against German uh, military personnel, you know, then you know the only way they could cope was by being more and more brutal in the way in which they repressed um, those forms of dissent. And the same thing was really true of the Japanese army, which was, on the whole, quite independent of much of what was you know, being talked about in Tokyo. Many local commanders took you know, affairs into their own hands, and it depended really on how far they were prepared to go. And against the Chinese, they were prepared to go a long way, because they treated the Chinese as almost subhuman. Um, and racism, I think, does have an important part to play in the Soviet Union, too, which is where the worst atrocities are committed. There's not only the Jews, but the Slavs, too, who are regarded as, as you know, racially second class. And you could do with them what you wanted. And if they were in the way, as they appeared to be, well, in the end, you had to get rid of them. Um, so it's a combination, I think, of a kind of toxic military culture of repression um, and uh, a, a powerful racial intolerance of the people you've conquered goes some way to explaining it. But I think, you know, we still have, you know, more to explain. Richard, you said something in, in your answer to Brett that I haven't heard anybody talk about, the idea of the the vision of the Axis powers of the world had they won. I wonder if, you know, you can expand a little bit on that. What was what was the the what they they hoped would be the end result of winning World War Two? Um, what kind of world did they expect to to have? And, and the reason I'm asking that question is because obviously they didn't get it. So how does that vision then contribute, uh, or does it even contribute, to the way post-war relations happened uh, across the, the globe? Well, I mean, their, their vision is really a geopolitical one. And this is the great age of, you know, the popular age of geopolitics in the 1920s and 30s. So. You know, they wanted to change the political geography of the world by establishing their own empires. Um, you know, in the German case, Hitler always said he was happy for the British Empire to be there as well, as long as the British let him have a German empire. And he could never understand why the British weren't happy for him to have it. The Japanese, too, I think, had this, this strong sense that you know, they deserved an empire, and why were other people objecting to it? Um, but what they, you know, all three cases, Italy too, I think, was a sense that there was a turning point in in global politics, and that you know they should take advantage of it, and they would be able to construct a, a very different world. Um, it, it dominated, of course, by German, Japanese, and Italian interests, but tolerating the United States and Britain, of course, as part of that world as well. Um, it, it now looks, as we you know, as we look at it, it looks like a fantasy. And the extraordinary thing is, of course, that at the end of the war, all those imperial projects collapsed. And in all three states, those groups that had favored empire, the idea of you know, geopolitical change disappeared, really. They no longer had any uh, political traction. And Germany, Japan, and Italy were integrated into the Western world and became, of course, economically very successful. In Japan and Germany's case, economic you know, superpowers. Uh, so they didn't need empire. <laughs> Um, and, um, you know, from that point of view, the, the, the war for them was a complete waste of manpower, resources, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You know, in the end, if they just simply accepted in the 1930s, American leadership of an increasingly liberalized world economy, 
they would have got much of what they wanted. Interesting. Brett? When we look at how different societies view themselves, Americans don't usually view themselves as an imperial power. Can you um, talk a little bit about how or why you would classify um, a country as an imperial power? Yes, I mean, I've been asked this quite a bit, and, and, and my comments in the book about America not being an imperial power in that conventional sense, in other words, in the same way the Dutch or the Belgians or the French or the British were colonial powers, um, dominating territories for the subject peoples. Um, America, uh, it's sometimes said that America is an empire of bases. Of course, it's a, it's a hegemonic power, which has huge power worldwide. And I would never pretend that wasn't the case. But it's not an empire in the sense in which the British, French, Dutch, German, uh, Italian empires were empires. Um, and uh, I think it's misleading in a way, to talk about empire so loosely, it can be applied to almost anything, a shopping empire or whatever. Uh, a, a way I use it is, is very specific. It's a, a period of European expansion, really from the 16th century onwards, in which Europe began to push out, to dominate more and more areas of the globe, and to do so on their terms, i.e. subject people, areas to be exploited and so on. Um, now, I mean, I think that the United States has uh, you know some of those features in its uh, in its uh, post nineteen forty five behaviour, but I think it's misleading to call it an imperial power in that sense. I see it as a, a hegemonic power, uh, like China today, a hegemonic power. Um, uh, it doesn't mean they don't do a lot of things that look a bit like imperialism, but it's not to me imperialism. Okay, Rick. Richard, at the uh, end of the broadcast portion, uh, when we ask you. Uh, why is this topic relevant? You made a comment about warning uh, us that uh, uh, a lot of these issues are not going away. And I'm looking at at the Chinese uh, uh, and the uh, Russians, particularly Putin, with it appears, it feels like that they're trying to go after uh, the reinstitution of some form of geo, uh, geopolitical empire is is this uh, again delusional on my part well yes i mean it's hard to i mean again i think it's hard to see it as empire i mean you know putin wants to take over those areas of southern ukraine and make them russian um fill them with russians as part of russia it's not a colony uh and china too um, you know, for all its international influence, economic influence in particular, and so on, in start it seems to be a colonizing power. Um, although people living, I think, in, in Central Asia or Tibet might disagree with that. Um, I think that the, the important thing is there are lessons to be learned. That war is brutal, and um, maybe we don't need to be told that. But I, I think one of the things I've done in my book is to get people face to face with what it was like. Um, but the world we live in now is a different world. It's 80 years on. The geopolitics are different. The balance of power is different. Uh, and I, I hesitate, I think, to, to make too many comparisons with the 1930s and 40s, because I think that can often be misleading. All right. Um, 
Well, I get the honor of the last question, and I'm also going to go back to uh, a term that I hadn't really heard anybody use before that you you used in the radio segment, um, which was the idea of the politics of resentment. Um, I've read a number of things talking about American and and uh, English and in European in general sorts of of. Uh, extremism as it develops and the rise of sort of ultranationalism in in uh, a number of countries um and it feels to me like the politics of resentment are very much alive and well today uh and being used by by politicians do you see this as the same kind of thing is this a a concept that that um recurs generationally or maybe you know at least once or twice you know within a century or whatever is this something that that seems to percolate back or is it really something that's relatively new um well i mean you could probably trace it trace it trace it back through um early modern and medieval um <clears throat> europe for example um but i think that would be quite difficult I and mean, i'm talking about the politics and sentiments in established states uh with regimes uh which are able to you know, use propaganda to, to cultivate a popular sense of resentment as well. But I think it is important, yes, I don't think it's just in, in 1920s and 30s. Um, and I think that um, you know, resentment as a, as a political emotion, if you like, is something that we underestimate. Uh, and you can see, too, in, in the post-war world. In fact, you might even argue that one of the things that Putin is motivated by is deep resentment at the breakup of the Soviet Union. Um, the declaration of Ukrainian independence, Ukraine able to take over the Crimea. Uh, and that's that's really rankled with Putin you know, ever since he came to power. The idea that, he, uh, that his, predecessor, his predecessor should not have allowed that and resentful that it's ended up with Russia being less powerful and less significant internationally than it was. So, you know, there's an example, I think, where you might see something still being mobilized. Well, and I think here in the States, more and more we we look at our former president, Donald Trump, in that same vein of having relied on or having uh, exploited feelings of resentment, particularly amongst rural populations. Yes, I mean it can be you know, applied to to you know, domestic politics as well as um, uh, as well as international politics. It becomes dangerous, so I think once it becomes m- mobilised internationally, because you know you, you you in the end, if you build up a politics resentment, you've got to deliver something. <laughs> no good just being resentful if you can't do something about it. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. There has to be a relief valve somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, thank you. We want to thank our guest for this 502nd show, Dr. Richard Overy, honorary professor of history at Exeter University, who talked to us about his book, Blood and Ruin, The Last Imperial War, 1911 to 1945. Our history buffs for today's show were Brett Menard and Rick Sweet. ROA can be found at 9.30 p.m. Friday nights on KALA Radio or on the web at TuneIn.com. If you're looking for older programs, you'll find them at SoundCloud.com. Just put KALA Radio in the search, click on the first icon, and scroll down to find nearly a decade of ROI shows. And you can also find ROI on all of your favorite streaming platforms. ROI is recorded at station KALA, San Ambrose University.